This podcast is brought to you by Greystone Theological Institute. Faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I teach in the Biblical and Religious Studies Department at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here, as always, with my co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church is, of course, a congregation within the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. And against all odds, and much to my personal disappointment, uh, the PCA has had a GA this year that that actually did some good things. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that I love about being in the OPC is is being able to pray that biblical prayer, a version of the one our Lord refers to. You know, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like <laughs> other Presbyterians, <laughs> like this Presbyterian Church in America denomination over here. Yeah. Unfortunately. Despite all of my prayers to the contrary, <laughs> it would appear that the PCA may be pulling back from the brink of total self-destruction and dissolution into the corrupt values of our wider culture. Todd, what went wrong? <laughs> you're you're going to get so many fans over this. I'll tell you, <laughs> so the, 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 my, my more progressive uh, brothers in the PCA are just going to love you after that introduction. Yeah. Well, what, well, what happened? Um, well, I can tell you what happened was a surprise to um, just about everyone. I think it is, it is no secret to most of us, certainly to those within the PCA. It's no secret that there are uh, really broadly speaking two camps in the PCA as one, as one of the leaders of the national partnership, which is an organization and, and a lobbying organization of progressives within the PCA. Um, he refers to it as tribes. We're, we're in different tribes uh, in the PCA, and it's true. Uh, you have those, and and I wouldn't I wouldn't characterize one side as conservative and the other side as liberal. I mean, we're not talking about PCUSA style of Protestant liberalism. Yeah, that's a very important distinction, yeah. I think. We need yeah. to be careful. We're not, we're not talking about your brothers in the PCA as liberals. Exactly. There's a definite it, difference there. There is a difference, um, but it has more to do with maybe a better way to capture it is um, those who are committed um, to Reformed Presbyterianism and, and the distinctions of Reformed Presbyterianism and those that desire a, a much broader kind of evangelicalism, a much broader tent. Um, in the PCA, and um, and that's caused a lot of a lot of friction, obviously. And over the last ten years or so, this group of, of broader evangelicals in the PCA, what actually what what Brian Chapel, who is certainly identified with that tribe, he 
calls that tribe of which he is a part progressives. So I'll, I'll use that term not to be equated with Protestant liberalism, but I'll use Dr. Chapel's. Nor to be equated with the way it's used, by the way, in the broader secular world, where we tend to think of progressives as sort of the radical left, if you like, of the political spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, the tension has been there, and the progressives have been winning a lot of ground over the last 10 years in our general assemblies. Uh, Not every single vote, but they've been gaining lots of ground to the extent that a lot of us were thinking, you know, maybe... Uh, maybe those that are on the more traditionalist side, may, maybe we are a minority in the PCA. May, maybe, maybe we're not representative. Maybe we've been wrong about this. But I think what was confirmed at this year's General Assembly is, is, is it's really not like that at all. And I think what we saw at General Assembly this year, which was held in St. Louis, by the way, which is in the heart of what may be our most progressive presbytery, is that that more traditionalist camp really holds the ascendancy. Um, what we saw was instead of a 50-50 division or a 55-40 division, 45 division, we saw something more akin to about a 75-25 um, division in terms of how several key votes went. And so in that sense, we can say there's unity in that we're much, you know, it's much more, you know, the divide is much more like 75% to 25% rather than 45% to 55%. Um, so there was a lot of us, there, there were many of us who, who, who left General Assembly very encouraged and others who left General Assembly pretty angry, actually, as, as the Twitter storms began to roll out. Uh, and some of it got a little ugly, to be yeah, quite there was, honest. There was tremendous positive appreciation from the progressives for a piece <laughs> I did on First Things. <laughs> oh, they love that. Yeah, they, they, that. they, they lionized me. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> what what yeah. fascinates me about that, though, and it, and it was a challenge that I put forth in the First Things piece, actually, was that you know the progressive stock in trade is very much, we need to listen to other people. And right. we need we need calm discussion, which I, I very much agree with as yes. yeah. The, but the question is, is that rhetoric? Yeah. Or is that policy? And right. I think what's emerging in in the month since the General Assembly is that's rhetoric. That the yeah. that actually it, when it, these it guys was. lose, certainly their most prominent leaders don't seem that interested in listening to what the church is trying to say to them. Now, to be fair, one has to say, when anybody loses, initially there's there's a sting and there's a hurt, and and we can all say things right. in the heat of a of an unexpected loss that don't really represent yes. our strategy, don't really represent how we we think we should move forward. So it's perhaps a little harsh to to rush to judgment on what's gone on in the month since. But I think the real sure. challenge for progressives at this point is. This is not a marginal loss. This is a huge loss. Your brothers are really trying to say something to you in the church now. Are you prepared to listen to them or are you going to dismiss them as bigots? Now, it does occur to me at this point, Todd, that we should probably clarify for listeners who aren't PCA exactly what the the specific contentious decisions are and what their implications are. Yes, there were there were really four key votes. And, and, and this is why people showed up in such numbers at General Assembly this year. Just to put it in perspective, uh, the previous highest record in terms of of attendance of voting commissioners was at the General Assembly in Dallas in 2019, and it was 1600. This year, we had just over 2100 
um, in St. Louis. And so that's a jump of about 500 more uh, present. And so, and people were there to vote and we knew what we were Interesting there to vote Interesting uh, comparison there with the Southern Baptist Convention that also, saw, I mean, it's a much bigger yes. denomination, but also exactly. saw a, a massive attendance at what was going Big to be jump. a very contentious uh, convention. Exactly. Yeah. And people were there to vote. And, and I think the mood going into it is that what we'd seen over the last 10 years of what seemed like the real ascendancy of our, of our broader, more progressive brothers and, and the fact that it was going to be held in, uh, in St. Louis in the midst of our, of our most progressive presbytery, our, our progressives were, I think, feeling very, very confident. And the more traditionalist guys were, were feeling not so confident at all. Um, in fact, I didn't talk to a single guy who's kind of on my side of things that was saying, you know, I think these votes are going to go our way. I, I didn't talk to a single guy. And so what we saw in the lead up were, were lots of blog posts and Twitters from many of our progressive brothers in the lead up to GA saying, you know, let's be one. Let's let's love each other. Let's let's be unified. Let's not badmouth each other. And again, it's easy to have that attitude when you're feeling really confident. Um, and so we saw that going in and then we saw a very different note uh, just yeah. a few days later. But that said, there, there were four key votes. There, there were a lot of important votes, but but four that came to the surface, four votes that that really brought out uh, the numbers in terms of commissioners this year. One had to do with um, uh, the, a presbytery's authority um, in giving instructions to uh, the members of that presbytery, the, the, the particularly particularly the teaching elders in that presbytery, the ministers. And it had to do with um, one of our presbyteries that has consistently instructed um, any of its members who are coming in to the presbytery that while they may hold certain exceptions to the Westminster Confession of Faith, they cannot teach those exceptions, um, which makes a lot of sense to a yeah, lot I, of us. Actually, I, put, um, I, dis, I dissent from that, actually, in that I think yeah, if you yeah. allow a man to take an exception, you have to allow him to teach it. Because what does he do when somebody says, Pastor, what's your opinion on this? If, you know, if, sure. if, if he's bound such that he says, actually, I can't comment on that, he's already commented mm -hmm. on it. So I actually dissent right. from that on the grounds that I think transparency means if you're going to allow a man to take an exception, you, as long as he makes it clear that he's teaching it as an exception, I don't have a problem with, with, uh, with what sounds like the progressive stand on that. And, and where I disagree with you on that is that while we are a good faith subscription denomination, which basically means there's a few issues that, quote, don't strike at the right. vitals of our religion is the formal language, that we allow a person to take certain kinds of exceptions with a few areas. Good faith, meaning, you, you know, those are the only exceptions yeah. you take. You know, you're going to be honest with us up front and there's nothing else you're holding back. And, and, if, and as long as it's an issue that we allow some ex certain exceptions on. Then, then we then we will ordain yeah. you. We'll, we'll allow you into into the presbytery. And and why I think it's a good idea to give instructions that you're not going to instruct the church according to your exceptions is that what ends up happening, I fear, is that we end up with um, a different uh, 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 doctrinal standard for each teaching elder and and for each presbytery. Um, I think it's fine if in a conversation, a pastor says, well, personally, you know, I, well, and again, the, the exceptions are, are public, you know, any member of a church can know if, if their pastor or pastors take any exceptions and what those are, but 
the thing about exceptions is that um, we make it very clear that it's not what is stated. It's in conflict with what is stated in our confession of faith, but we allow that conflict. But the official position of the PCA is still yeah. the confession as it as it's been received. Now, the minister had no problem with it, apparently. You know, that has been the practice in I think a lot of our presbyteries over the years. Well, you can hold these exceptions. You're just not going to preach those exceptions. Um, and what happened, though, was the committee that reviews the presbytery records saw this and uh, and dinged this presbytery for it and said, no, we don't like that. We don't like that. You're even though this had been typically the practice. Um, and so they were they referred them on really in a disciplinary action to the um, standing standing judicial commission, which is our highest court. And uh, and there was a a minority report out of the committee that said, no, we we believe that this particular presbytery acted properly. And so it came before a vote. Should we affirm this presbytery and say, yes, they can say to their ministers, you can hold this exception, but you can't preach this exception. Or are we going to agree with the committee and send this presbytery on to the standing judicial commission? And the vote was overwhelmingly in favor of the presbytery. Now that was the first key vote and it shocked everybody to be quite honest. And that really served as kind of a bellwether. At that point, we started kind of talking amongst each other and saying, wow, you know, could this mean that we're going to see a particular direction in these other key votes? And, and indeed we so did. Take us to the um, side. I'm sure most of our listeners, they're interested in the, not so yeah. much the exception stuff, but the side B stuff. What right. about the side B homosexuality so we, stuff? Yeah. So there were two key overtures that, that came before the overtures committee. Um, one was, if, if you ever want to get on, you know, the PCA's website, you can look these up. One was Overture 23 and another was Overture 37. And everybody coming into PCA had those two numbers memorized because we were there to vote on those two overtures. And they both deal with human sexuality and sanctification. And, and they are in large measure, uh, well, really almost wholly in response to the influence of the theology of revoice. And I'm sure most of our listeners know what revoice is. It's this. You have a website, revoice.us, if you want to go and look up and and see for yourself. Exactly. And again, to remind people, the debate is not over gay marriage. And I'm thankful for that. Um, Our our neighbors that are associated with revoice um, and side B homosexuality, what they hold is that we, we, we practice the historic Christian sexual ethic, um, sexual intimacy belongs only within a marriage between a man and a woman. So they affirm that we're glad for that. What they do though, is that their theology is what many of us believe is an undermining of the biblical and confessional doctrine of our, of, of sanctification, um, of, uh, of human identity and our identity in Christ and how we should identify ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And so they hold to to, to taxonomy, like, you know, um, you know, gay Christian and, uh, really they treat their same sex attraction as a part of their identity. And, and they tend to see same sex attraction as being, uh, uh, morally neutral and in some cases even positive. So some of the speakers at, at the revoice conferences each year have, have actually said that their same sex attraction is a positive blessing in their life. Um, others may not go that far, but they deny that there's a moral dimension to the same-sex attraction, and it only becomes a moral issue 
if they deliberately act out on that same sex attraction through deliberate lust or deliberate And, and let's make it clear action. here, we're not talking about people who want to have really close friendships with somebody of the same sex, essentially. Right. If that's all it was, I've been we trying have to, a problem. You know, talking with somebody online, trying to get the distinction. Okay, if you're not talking about same-sex attraction that has a what we might call a lust component, for one of a, for, to use a right. rather unsubtle word, but if you're not talking about a mm. desire that has a distinct sexual intimacy, romantic, romantic aspect yep. to it, are you merely asking for close male to male, close female to female friendship? And the answers I've received have not been reassuring on that point. They, they seem rather vague, no. to be honest. Right. In fact, um, Nate Collins, who is a member of Memorial PCA Church in St. Louis, um, and Greg Johnson, uh, the pastor of that church, both of those men identify themselves as gay or same-sex attracted. They have both explicitly answered that very question. Aren't we just talking about close, appropriate as would male have been typical in the Victorian era, for example, if you read exactly. male to male letters exactly. from Victorian times. Uh, yeah. Very affectionate. Yeah. yeah. But it no. wasn't sexualized. They no. didn't think of it in those terms. Yeah. But those men, as well as others associated with Revoice, have answered that question. No, we're talking about something more than right. close male friendship. And, and what they go on to describe, and you'll see this in the so-called spiritual friendship movement, what they go on to describe is basically a committed romantic relationship without intercourse or without the sexual act. Um, it has the markers of romance, a, a sometimes a commitment sealed in a formal ceremony, and then oftentimes even sharing a home, sharing property, uh, sharing income, and making a lifelong commitment to each other, but just mm. abstaining from sex. Now, anybody in their right mind looks at that and says, that's insane. That, that fails every single test you put it to of if it's a man and a woman, it, it automatically just fails that, that test. So, so I, you know, we, we go into that detail to let people know that even though we're not debating over whether or not two men should have sex or two women should be engaged in physical intimacy, what we're, what we're talking about is it's still a very significant issue. Very significant. Exactly. And, and it deals with our sanctification. It deals with our spiritual growth and how we understand ourselves. And so these two overtures, overture 23 and overture 37 seek to, limit or or really entirely eliminate the influence of that theology into the the, the PCA and, and how it's worded is this. So Overture 23 is worded this way. Uh, this would add language to our book of church order. And, and the language would be this. Officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who profess an identity such as, but not limited to, gay Christian, same-sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or like terms, that undermines or contradicts their identity as new creations in Christ, either by denying the sinfulness of fallen desires, such as but not limited to same-sex attraction, or by denying the reality and hope of progressive sanctification, or by failing to pursue spirit-empowered victory over their sin sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained so, office. Now, what's interesting about that, Todd, is that I've seen it said since then that the PCA has said that individuals struggling with homoerotic desire, et cetera, et cetera, are disqualified from ministry. When you read nope. that, certainly the natural reading of what you've just laid out to us is not that mm -hmm. at all, uh, you know, any more no, it's than not. it's, you know, you're saying that, that a, a pastor who struggles with greed 
or with laziness right. or, you yeah. know, with coveting his neighbor's wife is disqualified right. automatically. Missing. So it's not demanding sinless perfection or anything approximating no, it, it. What it's actually no. demanding fact, is a certain yeah. theological understanding of those desires right. and also a setting of that issue within the broader issue of Christian identity and Christian sanctification. And I think it's very important to say that because there's a lot of misinformation being put out. And I I won't say by one side, maybe by both sides. I don't know. Maybe there are some who want to read on the right who want to read it in the wrong way. But that's not what the text is saying. The text is not saying you have to have achieved a level of pure sanctification. It's saying you have to realize that these desires are wrong and need to be mortified and trust in the Lord as you do that. Exactly. And that was made very clear from the chairman of the overtures committee as he presented this and called for uh, uh, the the, the commissioners to vote in favor of it. Uh, He pointed out very clearly that the language does not say, if this is an area of temptation for you, then you're automatically disqualified. From service, it's very clear that what it's saying is, if this is an area of temptation for you, then you must be committed yeah, to mortifying yeah. it and not name yourself yeah. by it and to not see it as your identity. And the other important parts of that are, you need to affirm the the progressive nature of sanctification. One of the reasons why that is so important is that the theology of revoice basically holds that you know once you're gay, you're always gay, and and those those attractions aren't going to change or diminish. I mean, that's what we hear a lot from some of these revoice folks. And we're saying, okay, it's possible that this could continue to be an area of significant the sins of one's for youth you. often persist into old age in different forms. It very well can. But we also know that God, in his power to sanctify his people by the presence of the Holy Spirit, can change our affections can lessen the heat of our temptations, can grow us in proper affections. That does seem to be pretty straightforwardly what the Apostle Paul teaches. Such were some of you. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, Absolutely. Paul is constantly calling on, on the church, that, uh, although reconciled, to be reconciled and to be sanctified. And that makes me, you know, yes. we, we, I, I made a distinction earlier. So, you know, progressives are not liberals. Liberals deny the supernatural. I worry that sometimes with progressives, we don't get a denial of the supernatural. Mm -hmm. We get a denial of the relevance of the supernatural, if I could put it that way. We get a denial of, not not a denial of the resurrection, but maybe Mm -hmm. a watering down of the power of the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Not a denial of the indwelling Holy Spirit and his sanctifying work but in a denial that it might actually make a yeah, real difference. Yeah. I mean, that's what we saw with the liberate theology and the Tully and Chivijan stuff, the glorious yeah. ruin stuff, which almost sounded like you're yeah. not, which ended oh so well for us all, but you know, uh, you know, some of us were calling that out pretty early on and we're being told we're legalists, right. moralists, pietists. Right. Uh, I was calling it out as it's actually bad Lutheran theology. Uh, it isn't even Luther, <laughs> right. Uh, right. but it ended really right. badly. It did. It did. And so, you know, Overture 23 is, I, I, I think it's clear and extremely um, um, helpful. 
the, the vote went down. And of course, everybody's on pins and needles yeah. at this point. The vote goes down. We use these electronic voting devices. So we're, you know, we have to wait a couple seconds. I think in the OPC, we still the use screen. the old Athenian bits of broken pot that we, we scratch something <laughs> on. <laughs> we have a guy up front who, uh, who rolls these chicken bones out <laughs> on a plate and then kind of reads them from there. But no, uh, so, so we're, we're sitting there waiting for the vote to tally up on the screen. And Overture 23 was approved by 78% wow. Of, wow. of the assembly. Now, that's an yeah. overwhelming vote. Now, of course, the ruling elders that were there from my church that were there voting, you know, they, they were thankful that the yeah. vote was overwhelming, but they're still kind of scratching their heads saying, now, why would anybody yeah. vote against yeah. that exactly? Yeah. You know, and, and it's kind of that, that biblical common sense that a lot of our yeah. ruling elders have. Uh, what exactly they is don't the live on the web literature? they don't think via twitter right. uh and yeah. sometimes they actually show some respect for the people with whom they disagree what an yes. amazing thing that is yes. to do these days it's extraordinary it's extraordinary so yeah. so that went that went through by 78 percent of the vote and there was a sense in which you could feel the on the one hand you could feel the air charged yeah. with positivity and affirmation and then on the other hand you could just see the air leave the room yeah. for some other folks. You saw you saw small kind of dark clouds descending. I'm over tempted to ask you to name names, but I'm, uh, we we won't go <laughs> no, there. No. We won't go there. I think we can no, all put no. names to names. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, well. Following that, then came um, uh, Overture Thirty Seven, which is related. And while Overture Twenty Three deals with those who are uh, in ministry and the ex the expectation for those who are serving in office overture 37 is very closely related but it has to do with how how we how presbyteries examine the candidates for ordination and and it adds to the language of our book of church order that we're going to deal with these issues now what was interesting carl is that prior to this we noticed that our book of church order doesn't address directly or tell presbyteries directly to examine a man on his godly character, really. Um, now, every Presbytery I know does that, but there didn't seem to be in the BCO right. this kind of direct law. Probably because so, it was just so it's you been know, added. at the time these things were put together 50 years ago, or whatever, it was just assumed, yeah. you know, that you would you'd never have to explicitly state that because gosh, it's plain as right. a pike staff that's a, that's what one should be doing. Exactly. You know, it's sort of like thinking back to 1973. Yeah. In Birmingham, Alabama, at the first PCA General Assembly, if somebody had stood up and said, you know, we're going to need something in the book of church order to make sure that none of our pastors identify as yeah. a gay Christian, they would have thought you were stepping yeah. off of a spaceship yeah. at that point. Yeah. What do you mean? That would yeah. never happen in the PCA. Well, here we are. But so so this, that, that the next um, overture adds language to say, you know, presbyteries have to yeah. examine their candidates in these issues. And this is how it reads. And again, I ask any reasonably minded person to find the problem here, but this is how it reads in the examine in the examination of a candidate's personal character, the presbytery shall give specific attention to potentially notorious concerns such as, but not limited to relational sins, sexual immorality, including homosexuality, child abuse, fornication, yeah. and pornography addictions, abusive behavior, racism, and financial mismanagement. Careful attention must be given to his practical struggle against sinful actions, as well as to, as well as to persist in sinful, as well as to persistent sinful desires. The candidate must give clear testimony of reliance upon his union with Christ, 
and the benefits thereof by the Holy Spirit, depending on this work of grace to make progress over sin and to bear fruit. While imperfection will remain, he must not be known by reputation or self-profession according to his remaining sinfulness, but rather by the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus in order to maintain discretion and protect the honor of the pastoral office. Presbyteries are encouraged to appoint a committee to conduct detailed examination of these matters and to give prayerful support to candidates. Now, I read that, so many of my brothers read that and say, that makes perfect sense. And and you'll also notice that it does not just single out same-sex attraction. No, it's calling for general. It's it's specifying particular forms of sin that we may be particularly prone to in our culture. Exactly. Exactly. And and what caused, because uh, this overture was more hotly fought against than Overture 23. And here's why. Here's why. Because it specifically says that a candidate should not be known by reputation or self-profession, yeah, yeah. according to yeah. his remaining sinfulness. And, uh, and they know, you know, that they've got some brothers currently yeah. serving in the PCA that call themselves gay Christians. And they want to leave the door open for men who call themselves gay Christians to be ordained in the PCA. Yeah. So we need to wrap up in a second, Todd, but here, one, one last question, a bit of speculation and a question. Obviously this, this is not immediately church law. It has to go back to the presbyteries. Two thirds of the presbyteries have to approve these changes. And then you next general assembly, you get a straight majority vote and it's, it will be built in. So nothing is certain as yet. Here's my question. Looking at the Twitter responses, and I don't do Twitter myself, but occasionally I look at these things. I was interested to see how this went down on Twitter. The language was quickly moving towards the PCA being a kind of homophobic denomination. Do you think that the progressives, or certainly the progressive wing of the progressives in the PCA, have the stomach to stay in a denomination for 12 months that they themselves have basically labeled homophobic? It looks to me as if this might not even get to the next General Assembly in terms of the current constitution of the PCA. Yeah. Before closing us, what do you yeah. think of that? Two second answer. Well, that's one. Of, yeah. Well, that's one of the big questions. And we've already got some guys that are headed okay. for the door over this and have found some other yeah. things yeah. to do. Um, and, and others who I think would <clears throat> like to resign in protest, but they need their jobs. Um, I predict I'll make a prediction. It is those two overtures changes in the book of church order will pass by two thirds majority of the presbyteries and it will easily pass um, a simple majority, yeah, the majority vote of the assembly the seems no problem at all. Given the majorities this time. Yep. So. Yep. But I, I think we're going to get the two thirds assembly uh, or presbytery vote. Well, anyway, that's, that's just a, a little bit of a glimpse as to what went on. Continue to pray for the Presbyterian church in America. Um, these are important distinctions that any denomination that is going to be struggling with, the incursion of side B homosexuality or that kind of thing is going to need to address somehow. Um, We want to invite you to go to our website, mortificationofspin.org. And uh, there you can register to win um, a copy of our friend Kevin DeYoung's uh, latest book uh, entitled Men and Women in the Church. It's published by Crossway. It's a very helpful, uh, biblical and practical introduction to what the Bible says about the ministry of men and women in the church, uh, those things that are similar, those things that where the Bible draws distinctions between 
the way that men and women are to serve um, in the church. It's a very helpful, very pastorally wise treatment of that topic. Um, uh, I would encourage you pastors and ministry leaders to get it, put it in your church library, get it as a, a resource for your people to read to provide good, um, warm pastoral clarity um, related to the goodness of God's design in that area. Um, and you can go to our website and register to win a copy of that book. And while you're there, uh, please keep in mind that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals depends upon uh, the kindness and generosity of those who uh, who um, are helped by the content that the Alliance provides. And if you'd like to make a donation, you can certainly do that. Because quite frankly, Carl and I don't know what we would do if we didn't have this podcast. Um, you know, Carl's even thought about maybe writing a book one day. Life would be knows, you know, hollow. Maybe. Empty and pointless. <laughs> Homogenous empty time, as Charles Taylor would say. It's true. Oh, I like that. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us, and we'll look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. University and seminary credentials are not the end, but only steps in a lifelong calling to theological wisdom. And theological wisdom is greatly needed today. Greystone Theological Institute exists to resource rigorous and effective continuing education and scholarship by hosting full and micro-course modules, study days, seminars, workshops, and other events designed for advanced theological edification and fellowship. Exploring and deploying advances in scholarship across the disciplines, Greystone sharpens skills, provokes new questions, and reconsiders old ones in the mode of confessional reformed Catholicity. Join the next course or event at Greystone in Pittsburgh or online or become a Greystone member at greystoneconnect.org today and enjoy access to the rapidly growing online library of all modules, events, and seminars for the price of a paperback. Greystone Theological Institute. Faithful theological wisdom, edification, and training in a rapidly changing world. Visit greystoneinstitute.org for more about Greystone and greystoneconnect.org to become a member today.